these rivers are pretty formidable things and uh you know, it took a little bit of development, but then I decided to paddle the the longest river on each continent from source to sea. So that's literally where the, the, the river is formed or where it basically comes out of the ground. You know, it might be a spring um, high up in the mountains and then follow that all the way to that water empties into uh, the ocean. Episode 115, Kayaking Seven Rivers on Seven Continents with Mark Kolch. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis Parsons. Mark Kolch has spent 20 years paddling the world's rivers and oceans. He was named one of the top 50 adventurous men by Men's Journal and is well-versed on the subject of adventure. Mark is currently undertaking a Seven Rivers, Seven Continents project where he paddles down the longest river on each of the seven continents. He's with me today to talk about this and to share his other stories from some of his other adventures. Mark, thanks for joining me. Hey, cool. Thanks for having me, Travis. Good to have you. So we catch up with you down in Argentina, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I've been, we've been down in Buenos Aires for the last uh, three years uh, living here. Uh, but uh, sadly, in uh, about two weeks, two and a half weeks, uh, we're, we're leaving uh, for, for good sort of thing. So uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a really fun three years, you know, some really good travel down in Patagonia and, and also up north, northern Argentina. So, uh, yeah, I'll be sad to go, but uh, it's been a good run for three years for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great down there. So let's get into who Mark Karch is. How did you grow up? What got you into this adventurous lifestyle from the start? Indeed, yeah, good question. I, I grew up in Australia, of course, um, but... Um, I grew up basically on the right on the Pacific Ocean, so we had a house right on the on the beach um, in Queensland, Australia, so on the on the east coast. And you know, I, from a small town, uh, there wasn't a a hell of a lot to do growing up. You know, this is Jesus showing my age, but I guess I <laughs> I grew up in the early '80s, or I was born in the late '70s, but grew up in the '80s, so. Um, you know, I'm sure things have changed back in that small town now, but uh, back then there wasn't a great deal to do, so you had to sort of find your own fun, which, uh, you know, at the time you sort of, as a kid, you're a bit bummed out that you don't have the same sort of facilities or, you know, things that maybe the, the kids in a big city might have, like had, hanging out in the mall or the the Space Invader Arcade or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, so we really had to make our own fun, but, you know, certainly living right on the Pacific Ocean there, you know, made it a bit easier. So on one side of the house, you have this ocean, um, and then out the back side of the house, you have the, the the Australian bush, so dry dry forest, you know. So we always found something to do and, and, and get up to mischief. So I, I guess in some way, certainly, you know, of course, you're not conscious of it at the time, but certainly in some way that would have been a precursor to to you know getting involved in 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 what i do now for sure well you you're it's funny you talk about growing up when you didn't have anything like malls and arcades but i think we were the lucky ones you know we didn't have phones and tablets to play on but that's what got us out there and got us uh to realize how we can create our own adventures oh for sure you know i'm i'm definitely a big fan of technology but um you know it's it, it is a really tough one because you know, how do you regulate it? How do you sort of ensure that you're, uh, you know, that you're, the kids aren't having, you know, being too much involved with their with their tablets, with their phones? And, and of course, you know, again, maybe we are showing our age, but, but for sure it's, it's, it's gone, uh, I think, in a, in a bit of a wrong direction. You know, I have some friends who are, who are working pretty hard to, to, you know, to change that, that, that balance around and get, kids and, and, and certainly adults as well back into the 
outdoors and, and, and back into the wild and, and that's for sure can can only be a good thing. So yeah, we were lucky. We didn't even have to choose because it was that or <laughs> or nothing. You know, two channels on the T V or a uh, or a video cassette tape or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Mom just kicked you out of the house and said, Get out of my hair. Go yeah. find something to do. <laughs> sure, sure. It was a good thing. Yeah, definitely. So how about paddling then uh you've been paddling for what over 20 years now how did uh how did you get started in that was there something that just got you hooked on it some experience uh i mean again i mean you know uh i've been paddling probably for around 20 years i which sort of means that i did actually get into it pretty late you know i was definitely for sure back in when i was in uh primary school and 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 high school you know, school camps and things like this, holidays with the parents. You know, we would have a, uh, we would have a canoe. I, I, I definitely distinctly remember, which is probably my first extended uh, experience paddling. Uh, we headed up to a, up into the, I don't know if I'd call the mountains, but they're sort of these pretty big hills up behind the, the, um, the town where I lived. There was a place called Yungala, which is like a, a rainforest sort of area and uh it's fairly fairly high elevation um but uh we used to holiday up there a lot we had some friends who ran a uh a campground sort of resort up there and uh i remember doing a uh, like a two-day canoeing trip with my dad and my brother and uh we were in these gosh i couldn't even think now you know for all the canoes and kayaks and rafts and things that i've paddled i've never come across these sort of canoes they're just these massive yellow roto-molded i assume roto-molded plastic things that weighed a ton super tough but super heavy and going down these creeks these mountain creeks and you know i was so young that when we get to an area where we couldn't float i remember dad jumping out and you know i'd just sit in the canoe and he would drag us over the rocks and then jump back in and uh that was that was probably my first real experience paddling and then you know a couple of times in school but it really wasn't until I was, I guess, 17 or 18 years old that, uh, you know, I got into paddling a lot more. And then I was really lucky. I had a friend who had uh, moved to South Africa and he was managing a river operation there. And I went and visited him uh, purely for a holiday. But, uh, you know, I, I hung out with him for a, for a few weeks and just sort of living the lifestyle of a of a river guide at, at, at that sort of i guess relatively early age it, it gets you you know you get bitten by the bug because you know we were we were um out in the sort of the south african bush on these really beautiful rivers you know not not real serious white water or anything like that we would take clients down in these uh two-person mohawk canoes so they're these big fiberglass canoes uh but certainly when we didn't have uh, clients, we would just hang out at a at an old farmhouse, clean the gear, and kick back, you know. So uh, that was that was sort of <laughs> it was a it was something that encouraged me to get to get into paddling a, a lot more seriously. Um, and I think anyone who's who's had the chance to to do some river guiding will would probably say the same thing. The lifestyle is 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 pretty hard to beat, and and that's certainly you know now that I'm a bit older and you know you have more things i guess more i don't know you know first world sort of stresses on you that you, know, you think back to the days where you're river guiding and uh it was it was a good time for sure yeah at the time you thought man i can get paid for doing something like this yeah. this is not a bad way to live life <laughs> uh, exactly as well you know I, after that i moved back to australia for a while and I, again i got lucky i had a friend who uh ran a sea kayaking uh, operation and we used to do we do uh, half day trips day trips uh, two day trips and then also week long trips up on the Great Barrier Reef up in uh, North, North Queensland and so we'd spend a week basically island hopping amongst these sort of tropical islands with these white sandy beaches you know we'd uh, go spear fishing and it really was exactly like that. It was almost a bit embarrassing um, that you're getting paid to, of course, after the first day, you're friends with your clients, more or less. You know, not every client's someone that you'd probably hang out with afterwards, but more or less you're friends with them. So then you spend the next 
six days hanging out with your friends, paddling in paradise and getting paid, it's yeah, it's it's hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So why would you encourage people to get into paddling? Where are some words of encouragement from your experiences? Uh, you know, paddling, I think, you know, from, from what I've seen, you know, I, I suppose people are sometimes less inclined to get into paddling because there is a certain barrier involved. And that barrier is obviously the, the technical skill necessary. And for for some people that is, you know, becomes in their mind quite a big barrier and it, and it really doesn't have to be, you know, I think some people are sit in a kayak, you know, a closed cockpit kayak, for example, or, you know, even an open canoe. And, and the first thing that goes through their mind is that, you know, what if I, what if I roll, what if I tip over, you know, and what if I get stuck? And, and that's a really big thing. And unfortunately, you know, that's a, that's a barrier for a lot of people. You know, it's a bit different if, you know, someone wants to get into uh, long-distance cycling, you know, or, or spend a weekend cycling or spend a weekend walking in the, in, the, in the hills sort of thing. The barriers to entry for those sorts of outdoor activities are, are pretty low, um, whereas with paddling, there is certainly a, there is certainly a level um, of impedance for people to get into, but I think if you can, you know, teach people to think past that and, you know, make them a bit more comfortable, a bit more at ease in, in whatever boat they're going to paddle, whether it's a, a stand-up paddleboard, a, a, a sit-on-top, a close-bit kayak, a, a raft or anything like that, then uh, the experiences that people can have on, on, on water, river, ocean, lakes, is for me, is is unbeatable you know you can reach places that you just can't get to when you, if you do coastal paddling uh along you know these these huge cliffs and things you get to see things from the water that you can't see if you're standing at the top of the cliff you can't reach it in any other way or if you're on a river you're going around you know these these corners and uh, you know round bends that uh again the, the access that you have whether by on foot by or by motor vehicle is, is is just not there. So you get to see places, and and certainly even depending where you end up on the planet, uh, people that you just normally would not never come across. So I think if you can get people past that first little barrier, that first little step, then it just opens up a whole world of possibilities for experiencing the outdoors and experiencing nature. Yeah, the sea kayaking um, aspect is what draws me. Not so much the whitewater piece of it, but just being out there on a on a sea kayak with you know multi days of uh, of provisions and and traveling like that sounds like an awesome way to to see the coastline. Oh, for sure, definitely. You know, and you know, I I, I sort of I guess I had a mix at the start of when I started paddling from from rivers and then and then back to back to sea kayaking. And, uh, yeah, the, 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 the great thing about, you know, uh, a proper, um, uh, touring sea kayak is the, the, the amount of, uh, provisions or, and equipment and things that you can, that you can fit into, uh, one of these kayaks for a multi-day trip is, is really quite amazing. You know, even on my long distance, uh, river journeys that I do, uh, in the past, a lot I've used uh, a, a touring sea kayak, uh, rotor molded plastic, just because it means I can abuse it a bit more, and I don't really have to worry about patching up fiberglass or a carbon boat or anything like that. But um, generally, I can fit about 15 days worth of worth of food, um, plus all my equipment. So I'm self-contained for more than two weeks at a time uh, in my kayak. So you know, if you think about that, then it's it's just amazing. You can disappear off the off the map or off the radar for two weeks at a time, and you know, had to a really isolated place. And yeah, it's heaven, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and your setup has got to be fairly limited too. I mean, you can only bring so much stuff, so it doesn't it it can't be too complicated to to kit yourself out to do it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's funny, you know. Every time you sort of you know, you do up a kit list or equipment list that you're going to need on one of these multi-day trips. Uh, when you see it in a spreadsheet, uh, it, it looks a lot, you know, 
but um, but uh, you know when you first load up your bike or, or, or sorry put all your gear into your dry bags first and uh, and then try and find all the sort of nooks and crannies in your in your in your boat to put it in then that that very first time it's it's probably not the most efficient pack that you've ever done but a, a couple of days in and 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 you've you've got it down down pat sort of thing and you obviously you find different ways to carry less and less on my trips that I do you know unfortunately unfortunately that's the way I've chosen to do it I have to carry a sort of uh, things that maybe I in, in a different situation, I wouldn't want to carry. So things like a laptop, uh, a lot of camera camera gear, uh, batteries, and uh, all, all sort of excess stuff like that, which which in itself uses up room. And and that's simply because I've chosen to, to, to capture my journeys, mostly by taking photos and, uh, you know, and obviously recording a journal and things like that and, and, and sharing the experience. But... Um, if that wasn't the method that I've done, then you could really, really cut back on the amount of gear that you that you have to carry. Which you know, less gear is always better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. But I'm glad you're taking that stuff along because it allows us to follow along with you. So thanks. No worries. <laughs> so how about a a fun story about something that was just a just a fantastic experience on one of these uh, trips you've t- taken? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, there's there's been so many, you know, particularly on this on this Seven Rivers project, the, these big rivers, uh, you know, just just amazing. I actually just, I've only had a smartphone for the last couple of months, but uh, I've been I've been doing a bit of Instagramming, and I actually put up a I put up a, a photo just today or just a few hours ago actually, and um, it's it's one of my favourite photos probably of. Of, of all the trips that I've done and it's, it was actually a campsite that I had last year on the on the Volga River when I did Source to Sea of the Volga in Russia and it's like uh, it's about halfway down and at this point the the Volga gets really really wide because the, there's nine dams on the Volga so it sort of cha- chops and changes and how wide it is but but at this point uh, at the campsite that I had it was you know it was a good I don't know, at, at one point, you know, it's probably about 20 or 30 miles wide. And uh, I, I had about five days uh, of, of a lot of rain and, and a lot of wind. And when you've got a river or a, or a body of water that, 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 that's that big, then uh, you can get in some, some kind of sketchy situations. But uh, this day that I made camp, I woke, I woke up and... The, this this huge expanse of water was just glass, and uh, you know usually later in the day the the wind is is bound to pick up and uh, it, it never lasts. But this particular day I had a you know 12 hours of paddling, um, and this water stayed like glass, which is which is a pretty rare rare occurrence when you're doing mot- these these really sort of three four five month long long paddling trips and. Uh, the, it just sort of really defined the whole Volga trip for me. The, this this one photo of this of this really nice campsite that I had because the Volga for me, you know, I went there with uh, I guess a lot of preconceived ideas about Russia, uh, about the people, and 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 you know for sure about the the river as well. Um, and probably from day, gosh, maybe day one day two before I was even on the river and certainly by the time I was on the river then every one of those ideas had been been blown out of the water you know the the river itself is just beautiful you know I would it's it's hard to put a figure on it but gosh I don't know I would say 95% 97% of the the river at least visually is pristine and just amazing with with trees or, or or hills or you know just these amazing sort of beaches and and things like that and 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 the people as well you know again growing up in the 80s the relationship between australia certainly the us and um and some other western countries wasn't wasn't brilliant with with russia so we we're sort of fed a certain view of of, of the country and and the people um, and 
the experience that I had on the Volga with the people could couldn't be further from that uh, media-fed stereotype, you know. So that one photo that I've got of the of this camp basically just sums it up, and I'm I'm basically obsessed with um, the Volga River now. And uh, when I got back from Russia last year, I had to sort of sometimes think: had I been somehow <laughs> brainwashed by the KGB to become some sort of sleeper agent for them <laughs> because, because the, the, the way that I you know viewed my experience was 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 just uh, unbeatable you know and and that was just on you know for, for that one river there's there's multiple other sort of situations whether it was on the Amazon and hanging out with people these people who live really basic lives up in the Andes or, or further down in the Brazilian Amazon, you know, you just have these, these experiences that, you know, if I was back home, I just, I just wouldn't get. And, you know, I, I certainly am not saying that everyone should just drop everything and, 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 you know, and head out for a five month trip because that's, you know, that's not what everyone enjoys. It's not always feasible and things like that. But, you know, I'm certainly, count myself very lucky that I've found something that I really enjoy doing and, and, you know, I'm in a really fortunate situation that I can do it time and time again, you know, and if I could do one of these trips in a lifetime, then I'd be, I'd be pretty happy, but to get to do them sort of year after year is, uh, is actually a bit cheeky of me, I think, but, uh, oh, well, <laughs> it's what I've chosen to do. So be it, right? <laughs> For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bent Gate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bent Gate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bent Gate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. We get that message a lot from the, the people that are actually out there doing this and, and traveling the world and doing adventures like the, like you're doing. Um, we get the same message, and that is, look, you know, things aren't always as you're told. You don't, don't, don't always just assume what you're told is, is the accurate depiction of a, of a people in their country. Get out there and experience it because everybody that goes out and does it comes back and says it is different. You know, the people around the world are beautiful. They're not what they're you know, portraying on on the major news networks and they just, it happens with every society and every, uh, in every, uh, corner of the world. So it's a, it's a repeated message and I appreciate you talking about it because we do have to get the word out about that, you know? Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was really lucky. I was invited to do a TEDx talk in the Netherlands and uh, I was only actually gone from Argentina for five days and the Netherlands is a long way from Argentina. So it was a, a fairly short, sharp, trip you know including flights but uh when these guys asked me quite a few months ago if i'd be interested in in speaking at this at this tedx 
I, I was kind of wary, you know, because I'm I'm of the opinion that you know I'm pretty realistic uh, in 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 what I do. You know, the, basically how I tell what I do is I paddle. You know, I don't do much. Out, I just paddle, and that's you know if, if any any anything good comes from that, brilliant. You know, but at the end of the day, I'm just paddling and having a, having a good time. So these guys asked if I could come and speak. And they had a certain, obviously, a topic or a, a, an overreaching topic for the for the whole event, and it was um, small steps matter. How you can, how people are making the world uh, a, a better place, and so I had to sort of think, come now, you know, again, you know, am I making the world a better place? And I, I really took some time before I committed to it because I didn't want to get up there and. And, you know, and fill people's heads with stories about the amazing things that I'm doing. But the one thing that I hope that I am doing, and it, it's something that has changed over the years, is that uh, I'm sharing stories from, from these different interesting places that I go to. And as you were saying, you know, if, if that sort of thing can, can help uh, give people just a, another bit of information that they can use to process, then, 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 then that's great, you know. When I first did my uh, first big river on this Seven Rivers project was the Amazon, and when we went there in 2007, you know that that the pure aim for that was was to get some adrenaline, you know, get a get a massive shot of adrenaline for about five or six months, and you know, and wear our sponsored gear and take photos, you know, draw sort of gnarly signs, and 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 that was it, you know, but. Uh, from from that trip and you know up up to now, you know the whole view that I have of these trips of, of mine have changed and and uh, you know uh, the for me the story of these of these rivers that I paddle is is not about me. Um, you know there's only so many times you can write a a blog post or an update that says you know today was hard, it was windy, it was hot, it was cold. Of course it's going to be that. You know that's what that's the adventure, that's the expedition that you're on. But uh, meanwhile, outside of, of of that sort of you know overused narrative is is the people that that live on this river, you know whether it's like an old Russian guy who's lived the whole his whole life by the by the Volga River, or if it's a it's a um, a Brazilian family who lives like on a stilt house in the in the flooded forest of uh, of the Amazon. For me, these are the stories that I want to want to show people and, and you know people can look at it and go yeah that's cool and then throw it away but now next time when they are presented with a, a story from you know mainstream media they can then process that story uh, add the sort of information that they got from me and then you know make up their own mind about these things they're not just led or not just driven by this this one particular um, stereotype or story that they're just sort of fed into their brain and you know if that's Helping a little in a really small way the planet, then then cool. But yeah, I just paddle. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I wanted to have you on this show. I mean, we're all about bringing that message to people as well. As far as I'm concerned, everybody in the world should listen to the Adventure Sports Podcast for that very reason. You need to have something that to compare it to CNN, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right, so Seven Rivers, Seven Continents. Let me have you talk about that. What is it all about, and what is your motivation for doing it? You mentioned the Amazon River. That's 3,700 miles and 153 days of paddling. That is one hell of a shot of adrenaline. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was a really cool trip. You know, it was, it was tough. It was, yeah, at times, you know, it just felt, felt impossible. You know, up, this on the upper Amazon where it's... Um, some pretty pretty serious white water, and uh, we had some really tough days on there. But again, you know, uh, I'm of the belief that you know I chose to put myself in those situations. So certainly at the time, it feels a bit life threatening and uh, and a bit dangerous because it was. But uh, at the end of the day, it's we've chosen to put ourselves in in in, in that sort of harm's way. You know, people who are, you know, I don't know, people who are sort of, I guess a bit topical now but sort of escaping violence in Syria or or you know people who are in you know really tough situations who live in 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 countries that um uh, where life is really hard then they don't really have a choice so uh, I've uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely big on a, any sort of difficult situations that I find myself in that, that I put myself in it. So, uh, the Amazon certainly was that. And, uh, it was a, it was a, you know, it's something that, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but for me, it was a bit of a life changer. The, the experience that we had on the, on the upper Amazon, certainly. And, uh, once we finished that river, you know, I got, I, I got home and it was, you know, the case of, well, what next? You know, I have to sort of follow that up with something, something pretty good now. You know, the the media stopped uh, stopped phoning, and no one. I can only roll out that story at dinner parties so so many times. <laughs> so I have to do something else. But after 153 days on this big river, I wasn't that keen at that point to to jump back onto a, another river. So um, I think I guess a year and a half after I got back from the Amazon. Uh, I went to uh, Iran in 2009, 2010, and uh, I walked across Iran from the from the Caspian Sea in the nor- on the northern border to the to the Persian Gulf in the in the south. So straight straight down through the middle, and um, you know I did that. I, I've always had a big interest in the Middle East, and you know I printed out a map. I remember at some point when we stopped into a small town on the Amazon just a rough map of the Middle East and I had a look at different places that I might be able to go and at that time in 2009 uh, you know I, I really looked at Iraq but of course at that time it was a it wasn't a great place to sort of be for a you know a bumbling sort of tourist I suppose <laughs> which is what I, I basically am and uh, so I'm uh, after that I looked at uh, Afghanistan and, and and it was the same sort of story unfortunately uh, there, was a, there was a small section, the Wakhan Corridor in Afghanistan, which was which was pretty safe. But you know, there was actually a, a, quite a few people, particularly mountaineering expeditions that that were going to this area. So I didn't really sort of want to, you know, jump in on that party. And then I I looked at uh, uh, northern Pakistan, and uh, actually by the time that I got round to to going somewhere. Um, what had happened in Afghanistan was this, I guess the coalition forces is what they're called. They uh, pushed the Taliban out of Afghanistan at, at one point into northern Pakistan. So that sort of made northern Pakistan off limits. Um, but then if you take a look map of the Middle East, these, con- surround, uh, these areas surround one country, and that's Iran. And, you know, for all the rhetoric, for all the media-led sort of you know, bias that we have about that country, you know, domestically, internally, uh, it's a really safe country. You know, there's no uh, fighting going on. There's, you know, there's there's no sort of extremist activity uh, inside the country. So uh, I researched that a little bit more and, you know, I headed there and just like I mentioned with Russia and the Volga, you know, Iran, again, is, you know, one of my favorite countries and the Iranian people are the most friendly people I've met in the in the entire world sort of thing, you know, up there with the Russians. And uh, that was that was certainly a big surprise for me. And that was that was a really great trip. Um, when I got back from Iran, uh, you know, I was on to my next expedition and it was actually my girlfriend who uh, suggested rather than jumping from different, you know, trips here and there, paddling, walking, climbing, this sort of thing. She said, maybe you should stick to rivers. And, uh, uh, you know, everyone's probably heard of the, the seven summits, the, the highest mountain on, on each continent, um, which has become so popular these days. And uh, because uh, I'm more of a river guy, a paddling guy, I looked at the longest river on each continent. And, uh, you know, these rivers are pretty formidable things. And, uh, you know, it took a little bit of development, but then I decided to paddle the the longest river on each continent from source to sea. So that's literally where the, the, the river is formed or where it basically comes out of the ground. You know, it might be a spring um, high up in the mountains and then follow that all the way to that water empties into uh, the ocean. And um, it's turned out to be a pretty cool project. It's it's working pretty well so far. After I, um, so the second river I did after the Amazon was actually in the U.S., the Missouri Mississippi. Uh, it's the longest uh, river system in the U.S. It's uh, it's three thousand eight hundred miles more or less. Um, 
uh, a bit actually it's actually a bit shorter than uh sorry 3780 miles it's shorter than the amazon and uh that took me 117 days and i did that all alone and that starts up in montana um up in up in the mountains there and uh empties into the uh Gulf of Mexico, but of course it meets up with the with the Mississippi just uh, just above St. Louis, and that was a really cool trip for me as well because it was my first ever trip to the United States, and you know you know it's not just countries like Iran and Russia that we have these preconceived ideas about you know it's 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 probably every country, and and for sure I had a preconceived idea about uh, about uh, the U.S. and you know things were were different to how, how I imagined it there as well. Um, and then, as I mentioned last year, I, I was really lucky to go to Russia and do the Volga. And uh, that's about 2,300 miles. It took me 71 days. And, you know, I've already gone on enough about, I guess, about the Volga. It was just, it was just a magic. I just had such a great time and hung out with such cool people that, yeah, it was, it was really cool. So hopefully next year, 2016, I'll be on to my fourth um, out of these, out of these seven rivers. So, uh, we'll see how I go. <laughs> so you've completed three already. You have four to go. What are the next four that you plan on doing? So the other four, um, the other four that are remaining, are two really quite tough ones and, uh, and two others that are that not so much. So, uh, there's, there's still the Nile to do, of course, in, in Africa. Um, that's going to be really tough. Uh, the upper Nile, uh, the White Nile is uh, some very difficult white water, uh, and then as you go further down, you know it becomes, I guess, a little bit less about the the dangers of the river, and a little bit more about um, about people. Uh, you know, unfortunately, some things that 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 happen, you know, when 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 people and and guns get involved. Uh, you know, it doesn't make for for really safe conditions paddling. Um, and, and again, you know, I put myself in these situations. So if if something did go really bad on 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 one of these these expeditions or something on the Nile, then you know I wouldn't complain too bitterly about it because you know I, I should have been smart enough, and and certainly I hope I am to to weigh up all the risks. To weigh up all the dangers that I'd face and, and choose whether to go or not. But uh, you know, now at the moment in South Sudan, you know, after after South Sudan separated from Sudan, you know, things were, were pretty good for a while. But then, unfortunately, now they're having a bit of a um, a civil war them, themselves. You know, so uh, going through there right now, for example, it just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't. You know, one one faction or another wouldn't wouldn't allow you to travel through that area. Just now, uh, one of the one of the groups uh, actually um, captured some barges which were owned by the United Nations, and uh, they had no problem sort of you know capturing things that owned to the United Nations. So I imagine with some guy paddling down on a kayak, <laughs> or a they're not going to have too much too much sort of trouble sort of stopping me either so uh then the Nile's going to be really really quite tough and uh the the second really tough one remaining is the Yangtze in China which is obviously the longest in Asia uh, a little shorter than the Amazon and the Nile but but very similar the the top four the, the four longest rivers in the world besides being the the longest on each of their respective continents is the Amazon Nile Yangtze and Missouri Mississippi and all four of those are quite similar in length uh the yangtze the the upper yangtze again the white water is is really really difficult you know there's there's definitely bits that impossible to paddle no matter who you are you know you just you just won't won't be able to descend and so that you'll have to portage it um and once the you reach the flat water then again it's, it's pretty straightforward but um i imagine in china you know some of the things that i might face might be a little bit of bureaucracy possibly you know people sort of checking up on me whether i should be there or not and you know when no matter in which country you go to when you try and cross or portage a dam then there's security there's pretty good security on all these dams so uh you have to sort of make a plan for that as well and uh there's there's quite a few dams on the yangtze so that'll make that difficult 
And then there's the, in Australia, we have the Mari Darling, which um, is about the same length as the Volga, 2,300 miles, uh, but totally opposite to the Volga, whereas the Volga was this huge volume river. Um, the, the Murray Darling in Australia runs in out west in the outback and, uh, you know, a thousand kilometers, sorry, 800 miles down the river where you'd expect enough volume of water to be sort of coming into the river from Chiris. It's still about as wide as a two-lane road, you know, it's just sort of this, wow. this dry riverbed that, that does go dry at times and, uh, so that's probably going to be the hardest thing in Australia is the fact that it's it often does run dry and you'll have to portage these these long sections. But I'm looking forward to that in that uh, you know as is often the case where you, I haven't really explored my own country, so uh, it'll be it'll be kind of cool to be able to to get to get out bush and travel through these areas, which you know again all, all these rivers. Um, which is part of the reason I wanted to paddle. I mean, you know, have such importance in uh, historically and certainly how uh, the communities, cities, and you know, whole countries have developed. And even in Australia, for even this river is, is quite dry. It was really important, you know, uh, quite a long time. You know, I guess, uh, you know, more than a hundred years ago, it was it was um, important for trade and things like that. Just like the Missouri Mississippi was, just like the Volga was. And uh, so that'll be pretty cool. And then the final river is in Antarctica. And uh, it's kind of a fun one, I hope. It's called the Onyx River, and it's only 25 miles long. So uh, as compared to 4,000 miles, it's, it's, it's certainly not going to be take too long. But uh, where the river runs, it's uh, in a protected area of Antarctica. So it's not a sort of place where you can just sort of turn up and say, yeah, cool, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smash this river, you know, sort of thing. Um, Basically, the only people who go to those areas are research scientists. So um, that's probably one river that I'll, I think I'll save to the end because uh, paddling-wise, it's pretty straightforward. But logistically and cost-wise, it might even be the most expensive trip that I do. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, that's going to be the, the biggest adventure is just getting to the Onyx at that point. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I still, uh, you know, I, occasionally when I'm sitting down on my computer, I'll pull up some maps and some information about it and just sort of, you know, have a few you know, thoughts about how it's going to all work out. And then I sort of put it to one side and think, yeah, I'll keep that till last year. Maybe after I've done six rivers that, uh, you know, I'll get enough interest that sort of, you know, I can sort of get a, a decent amount of sort of um, – backing and uh who knows you know i have friends who do a lot of polar stuff north pole and south pole and uh the the cost of their expeditions blow my mind you know you're talking more than a, a million pounds so my gosh wow. 1.3 million 1.4 million uh dollars and uh that's the cost of their expeditions and i just have to sort of laugh because the cost of my paddling these rivers Certainly, the Amazon, the Nile, and the Yangtze have a much increased cost, but uh, you know, only in the tens of thousands of dollars. You know, and, and these guys yeah, have, they pale in comparison. <laughs> exactly. So you can imagine the sort of sponsorship and the financial backing that these guys have to go go searching for, and um, some of them, uh, you know, manage it, but then other guys don't because it's 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 just so much money. So, uh, but hopefully, if I could get a tenth of the the, the financial backing that these guys get, then uh, then I'll be sorted for the rest of my rivers. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Elevate Conditioning's mission is to construct customized exercise programs based on solid mechanics and general progression. These allow clients to improve athletic performance while addressing limiting factors. You may not be an elite athlete. You have personal and professional responsibilities that make demands on your time. That doesn't mean that you don't have athletic goals and a desire to improve. Elevate Conditioning is here to teach you how to train your body to be the most powerful, effective, and efficient vehicle possible. Additionally, Elevate offers small group training, wilderness fitness adventures, and long-distance sessions via video. Find out more at www.elevateconditioning.com.
The Boulder Outdoor Center wants to help you get outdoors and have some fun. With their adventures, lessons, guided trips, and gear, they make it super simple for you and your family to experience dozens of adventure sports. Located in Boulder, Colorado, the Boulder Outdoor Center offers adventures from ATV tours to hot air balloon or glider rides over the Rockies. Try your hand at stand-up paddleboarding, whitewater rafting, horseback riding, and much, much more. Visit the Boulder Outdoor Center on the web at www.boc123.com or give them a call at So out of the three that you've done so far, uh, I can probably guess, but I assume the uh, the Volga River is the, the, your your neatest experience out of those three. Uh, you know, I, I, I definitely feel really bad if I put any of my trips, including the, uh, walking across Iran, Iran in, in in front of the others, because you know, you know, just like I said before, you know, I can think back now to to certain experiences that, that happened on every river or every journey that I've made and just, you know, just blow your minds. You know, there's, again, certainly, I guess, uh, photos jog your memory quite well, but uh, I have a photo of, um, on the, uh, pause enough, it's on my Instagram right here. <laughs> um, I have a photo on, of, one of the one day on the on the lower Amazon. So again, by this point, the Amazon's a really big river. You're surrounded by jungle on each side, and it's about 40 miles wide. Um, so it's basically more or less an ocean. And uh, we'd converted our whitewater raft into a with a um, with a turn into an oar raft, so an oar setup, um, which you use on whitewater. But you know, on the lower Amazon, there's no whitewater. It's just a big, big river. Um, but we spent 24 hours a day on this raft because it just didn't make sense to, to go to one side of the river or the other because it would just take too long. You know, on one, <laughs> right. the river bank's 20 miles that side or the other one's 15 miles that side. It's like, hey, what, what the heck? So it, on this, at this point on the Amazon, there was just two of us. Um, one of our mates, he got, he got really sick and had to head home, so it ended up just being the, the two of us. So we'd do six hours on, six hours off, and uh, on on the oars, so when you had your six hours off, you could you had to cook and you know catch a few hours sleep, and then it was your it was my mate's turn and, and vice versa. But there's one photo of my my mate sort of sticking his head out the out of the the shelter that we had on the raft, and it's it's me silhouetted on the oars, and behind me you can just see the the tree line of the Amazon jungle with the with the sun setting. But, but behind the trees and you know I, I look at that photo and I think the the amount of times that that we were in that situation you know it was probably I, I think it was just my turn to to get on to to get on the oars maybe so 6 p.m or something like that and it, was, it was my shift and uh, it was another six hours of rowing into the night but you know it, it was a bit of a drag or whatever but uh, a, a, when you sort of take a step back and think, uh, yeah, I'm in the middle of the Amazon jungle here. I'm in the in middle of the Amazon river and I'm, you know, it's, it's a Tuesday or whatever, you know, people are on the way home from work on the, on the train, on the bus or, or, or whatever, or they're sitting down for dinner. And here, here we are in the middle of this Amazon river. And, you know, you, you, you quickly stop your, your whinge and you st- quickly stop your moaning when you when you appreciate the, the sort of situation that you're in. So, uh, you know, there are such special times on, on each river that, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be hard place to, to choose one over the other. But, the you know, the Volga was special, I guess, because it was that, that um, because I had the experience of it being the total opposite to, to what I might have had uh, uh, expected um it was such a fun trip you know i 
I got nominated um, again this year. I got nominated in the Canoe and Kayak Awards in 2012 for my Missouri-Mississippi descent. Um, and I got nominated again uh, this year for my Volga descent. And, um, and you know, it's, it would have been, you know, I haven't won yet. I've been nominated twice, haven't won. But uh, <laughs> it, um, I, w- I definitely would have been up for winning the, my Missouri-Mississippi descent because um, it was a first descent, which I know sounds crazy. And it seems to sort of make Canoe and Kayak magazine angry at me because it's a U.S. magazine that, I sort of got a first descent on such an iconic sort of river system, and and it still sounds weird to me. But as far as we know, it's a first descent. But um, the Volga, when I got nominated this year, you know, when I, you know, obviously I tweet about it, you know, put the word out, that sort of thing. Um, people thought I was being really humble to say things like "Don't vote for me," and um, you know, vote for so. You know, I had some friends who were also nominated and in different categories or in the same category actually. And, um, you know, I put on all my social media, you know, that I was really honoured and really stoked to be nominated, but but don't vote for me. You know, vote for some of these other guys because their trips were harder or, or, or whatever. And, I and you know, obviously that gets you some accolades as well because people thought I was being really humble and modest. And I sort of had right. to make clear that, you know, if I thought my vulgar was, was a, was a winner, then trust me, I would not be telling people to vote for, for anyone else but me. <laughs> family would have gotten everyone on there to do multiple votes sort of thing. But the fact was, the vogue was just too enjoyable, it was too too good, you know, that to deserve some sort of award, you know. I spent 71 days on that river, and yeah, there were tough days, and there were some, some days where it got a little bit dangerous and dicey, that, you know, the river, when it got really wide, and these big storms came up but you know when every second day you're hanging out with some really cool Russian people and you're having a banya you know a a steam room with them and they're you know feeding you vodka and they're cooking you meals and they're they're showing you around their town where you've stopped in and it's just it was too good you know sort of thing so um, uh, I guess that's why it's sort of become my favorite because it was just so fun you know I have no doubt that uh, the Upper Nile and the Upper Yangtze and you know maybe certain other parts of the Nile aren't going to be looked looked upon so so favourably. You know when some guy might have a AK forty seven pointed in your face and <laughs> right. that's not quite the same as sort of you know drinking a few shots of vodka on the Volga. So uh, yeah, so yeah, they're all fun for sure and and all very enjoyable. Now I understand you you did get actually shot at on the Amazon at one point. Yeah, we did. We did. We uh, again. It was on the upper upper part of the river, the upper Rimac, when it's still in Peru. And you know this this area uh, of Peru is uh, you know it's a cocaine producing area. They grow a lot of uh, coca plants there, um, and they and they manufacture there as well into coca paste, and then and then move it out. So. Uh, we knew where we're going. You know, we again, we've done a lot of research and, you know, we sort of don't go in there blindly and sort of think, wow, what, we've ended up in this crazy area. We knew exactly where we we're going and, you know, we knew to take what we were going to do if certain things happened. But um, uh, when you travel through this area, um, you know, we, we were, again, we were quite lucky that you'd come around these corners to these small villages in this Upper Rimac Valley, and you know, people down by the water, you know, washing clothes or hanging out and things. And by the time that they more or less, you know, recover from all of these guys in this bright orange white water boat with sponsored logos all over it floating past, and by that time we've sort of floated around a corner, sort of thing. But uh, you know, we had to make camp, and and I think the first time we got shot at, we made camp on a bit of a a sand island in the in the middle of the river. The rivers, the white water had just finished, and then there's still a little bit of rapids sort of happening. But we'd made camp, a really beautiful camp in the middle of the river. And uh, uh, I remember distinctly, I was reading a book, and the other two boys were getting dinner ready, and it was the sun was just setting. And from across the other side of the river, we heard a couple of gunshots, uh, pretty loud, and you know, definitely quite close and it's like well hey who knows they whatever they're doing hunting or who knows but um about 20 minutes after that when the sun was almost gone it was sort of approaching dusk or darkness um 
a couple of shots came our direction, you know, over over our heads, and uh, uh, you know, I've uh, I've been around guns a fair bit, but you know, certainly not in a in a military sense or anything like that. But uh, you know, there's a certain noise that a, that a um, around makes when it goes over your head, pretty close, I guess, and you know, Oy. spinning as it leaves as it leaves the barrel, and you can sort of hear that noise and. It's like, yeah, that one was pretty close, and uh, we just didn't, you know, we put in this situation where we weren't sure what to do because the white water may or may not have been finished. Uh, it's dark, you know. We had our tents up, we had all our gear out. What are you going to do? So uh, I remember we we sort of got around camp that night with our lot, uh, headlamps off because that would have been a, made a perfect target. Um, and I I actually slept a little bit away from from the from the other guys. Um, not to save myself, but in this sort of vain attempt that if someone did come onto our little island, that we weren't just all sort of bailed up in one group. But uh, nothing else happened, and we pushed on. And then when we hit a little bit more flat water a few days later, we were coming around uh, uh, a big bend, and from, a, I guess, a, a small cliff face on the other side of the river, sort of surrounded by jungle, um, there was a few people stood there just, in, just wearing sort of board shorts, no shirts, and... Uh, one guy sort of opened up with his, um, you know, on full auto um, uh, over our heads. And uh, I was like, wow, that's kind of serious. You know, it's not just sort of single rounds from some really old rifle. It's this guy's gone full auto. And uh, they started motioning for us to come over to, to their side of the river. But, you know, we were on a fast corner. I was on the, I was actually on the oars. And, um, you know, but I think we're probably about two months in, and uh, by that time you sort of become, I guess, a bit hardened to the environment that you're in. And you know, it's I think back to it now, what a dumb thing to do. But you know, when when this guy, when these guys are yelling at us to come to their side of the river, and you're getting pulled around this fast corner, I stood up on my on the back of the raft and sort of just let fly with, you know, quite a few swear words, just telling them that you know, are you serious, mate? Can you see what what's happening here? <laughs> so we couldn't stop. We couldn't stop right then, but then we did pull over, and they caught up to us in these sort of bamboo sort of um, rafts. And uh, it turns out that these guys were military, and you just you wouldn't know because they're not wearing uniforms. They have no identification insignia or anything like that, and um, they just wanted to search our, our raft for uh, for cocaine. So the the first sort of shots we figure were from uh, the guys who are moving the cocaine and. Uh, the, the guys who shot us the second time are the guys who are, who are checking for cocaine. So, you know, we let them check our raft and, you know, after they checked it, we're all good buddies and, and that was that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, at the time it's a bit dicey, but, you know, certainly, uh, actually a few years after we went there, there was um, uh, a, a, um, a young South African guy who was actually uh, in, in touch with me before he went. He also wanted to do a, a source to see uh, of the Amazon using a different tributary, but, but then certainly going through the, the same area where, where we went. And um, uh, he was by, he was actually by himself. And I think he, he was on a bike for some part of it. Well, when it sort of got a little bit flat water, he, he got into a, a, a canoe or a, a, a kayak. And uh, he'd come around a corner and I believe there was two guys, three guys, sorry, on the um, on the corner of this riverbank, and uh, he waved to them, and then they all went back into the jungle, and one or two of them came back out with a shotgun, and just unloaded two two shots, and he got hit with with both shots, and uh, fell into the water, and he was in a pretty bad way. He sort of got rescued, but sort of got shifted around to different villages and people before he got um, before he got sort of properly properly rescued and 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 taken back to a bigger city, then on to Lima, and and then evac back to South Africa. But uh, he's got a very successful speaking gig now going, and he's got a best-selling book. So I don't know; it sort of worked out pretty well for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that works out. Yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah, exactly not sure what you I... want to happen, but <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not sure if I take a couple of shotgun blasts just to have a good, uh, good uh, speaking to and a, and a best-selling book, but. Uh, you know he was he was fine in the end. I think uh, yeah, his name's David David Duplice, and uh, the way he actually got finally rescued was that you know there's a big um, 
South big beer company, South African Breweries, which operates obviously internationally, and that they heard about him, and so they arranged all his evac and paid paid all his expenses and things like that. So uh, in the end, it wow. worked out pretty well. But uh, we were really lucky, I think, to to get through that area. And you know, at the time when we went through there, Peru and that region was the second second highest cocaine producing region of the world, still behind Colombia. Uh, unfortunately, uh, now it's number one, um, that, that exact area. So, you know, once we reached the next town after we got shot at that first time, we read in the paper um, that just the week before a military convoy who were in the area to, you know, take on these cocaine guys was uh, ambushed uh, uh, with, a, with a landmine and, um, and then attacked by these, by these drug guys. And uh, through this town, we'd often see these camouflage jeeps with guys on the back wearing bandanas and, you know, these AR-15s with grenade launchers on the bottoms and things like that, roaring through town. You're like, if, and they're the military, and these guys are getting, you know, sort of busted up by the cocaine guys. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> I think I'll see a clear of, you know, all of this sort of situation. But, yeah, we made it through, and it was all good. <laughs> good stories to tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, good story. So your Seven Rivers and Seven Continents project is still going on. Is there anything else you're working on in the middle of all this as well? Yeah, I know. You mean, I mean, uh, these rivers, because of, you know, I guess a multitude of factors, money being one, uh, family. I've got a young family. I've actually got three little kids and uh, and season and, you know, the, the state of these rivers at different times of year, it sort of ended up that I'm doing one of these big rivers, more or less one every two years or, or 18 months or thereabouts. And um, even though they're really big, long, difficult trips, you know, that's it sort of leaves a quite a bit of time in between. And, uh, you know, you can only talk about your past glories for for so long at a time where you, until you've got to get new material, I suppose. And, uh, you know, this year and, and, and going into next year, you know, I have uh, some other smaller projects going on, you know, two or three week paddles, um, either alone or with one or two friends uh, to some really cool parts of the planet. You know, I, it's, it's all very much in the planning stage at the moment, so I don't want to sort of... Uh, commit myself to anything but you know there's places actually in Argentina that we that we want to go there's places up in in North America or Canada and Alaska that we're going to head to and uh and and back to Africa uh as as well and it's just a uh, just short trips cool little trips in either really isolated areas or or rivers that run through isolated and populated areas and just film it, you know, and, and, and just see what, see what we come up with. You know, they're not necessarily the hardest trips in the world, but, but certainly as, as uh, you know, the, the scenery and the situations that hopefully we find ourselves in will, will you know, make for some, some, some really cool trips. And, you know, that's something that will sort of, I hope, keep me going and, and keep people interested in the in the in the trips that I do in between these, these, these really big rivers. So it uh, should be fun. Well, right on. Well, you'll have to keep us uh, posted, and we'll make sure we're following you to, to keep up on what you're doing. I'd love to have you back on to, to tell us about these, these other trips in the works. Yeah, cool, sure. That'll be cool. Excellent. So, yeah, I'll make sure I get all of your websites and uh, social media linked up in our show notes so people can go to the adventuresportspodcast.com site and find Mark Kolch's post, and his links will be down there. He's got uh, a great thing going on with Instagram and, of course, Facebook, Twitter, um, everything. So we'll get those linked up, and, uh, Mark, I'd love to have you back on. Oh, cool, man. That'd be great. I've had a, I've had a great time chatting to you, Travis. Yeah, you too. Well, I appreciate you giving me the time, and uh, we'll be chatting soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Mike. Take care. All right. Have a good evening. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click Contact Us. Also, take a minute and help us spread the word about the Adventure Sports Podcast. 
do us a favor and go on to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. Everything helps. Thanks for being a listener. Listener.